Hi, Madeline. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. It's been a while. We've been uh, we've taken a break of like what three four months. Yes. And now we're finally pulling things back together. So we're hurriedly pulling together a uh, a catch up episode so we can get back on with our lives and uh, tell people what's been going on for the last few months and uh, have a, an interview with um, a smart person later in the episode. Just but, a random uh, generic smart person. A random generic smart person. You just Occas- found them on the street. Occasionally they wander in. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we're, you know, we, we, we weren't imprisoned with no doping bans, uh, no, uh, no sort of um, special prohibitions on recording. We just basically couldn't get the time and the place and the equipment all lined up in one place. We were actually working. We were working. Well, we were, we're moving. I was moving. Yeah, so you I were was moving. Yeah, we were moving from Amsterdam to The Hague. So that uh, that took a bit chunk out of August. Yeah, moving is um, And so, but it gave us a, a slightly better place to uh, to set up in better offices. Mm-hmm. Um, lovely city. And uh, if anybody's here, come visit. We actually just had uh, one of our first visitors, uh, Dr. Kristen Alford, who runs MOD, which is the Museum of Discovery in Adelaide. Uh, graced our presence or our premises um, here a couple of days ago um, and lots of interesting things going on in the Hague as well as Netherlands more and broadly. I visited. You did visit. I see. I actually already that. forgot that. Um, that was part of why we moved was to make more space for your visit. So, <laughs> um, so you were here. I like here. my new room. I do like it. It's really It's nice. a comfy room. It's a comfy room. So we have, we have bigger offices, more offices. And, uh, yeah, um, great people coming through. So we did that. Um, we've been working on a couple of projects that were quite time consuming. One of them may be public in December. Um, and the other probably in a couple of weeks, we can start talking about it, but it's something that's definitely taking up a lot of our time right now. Yes. Um, but we'll have a great payoff, uh, come next year. Um, and also we were both on the road together in a couple, at least one event, um, mm-hmm. So we were together at the Me Convention in um, Frankfurt um, about a month and a half ago now already, uh, and um, then a couple of other events. But let's talk about Me Convention first because that is where the mythical you had to be there, standing room only, <laughs> live two live sessions of Under Futures happened. It's true. Um, it did happen. I remember. I was there. There are actual photos, which I will, which um, someone kindly printed and and sent us and actual sent us physical, in the mail, in the mail, physical photos. Yeah. Um, so that that analog touch is fantastic. But we actually, I, do I, have, I have now lived my my Alan J. Pacula dream of receiving mysterious photos in the mail. I'm going to let that go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we do have photographic evidence that we were there. So we did two one hour live sessions. So me convention, um, describe me convention for us. Uh, Me Convention is an extension of South by Southwest that is sponsored by Mercedes, and it is sort of done out uh, out in Frankfurt. And I think this was the third year that it was done, the third or fourth year. And it grows every year, and it's mostly uh, sort of designers, thinkers, fun people, um, a lot of teenagers uh, that oh, we met. I miss the teenagers. Yeah, we met the teenagers. Um and uh, I and then disclaim us. any knowledge of this. 
Um, oh, those those teenagers. Okay, yes, those teenagers. Yeah, yeah. the eternal teenagers. Yes, officer, those teenagers. Um, so they were right. So uh, day one, um, we essentially pulled pulled in, invited in um, some speakers from the main stage of me convention, and did our own kind of mix mashup, mix together of three people we thought would be interesting to have at a table together and had an hour long conversation in front of a live audience in a very warm, very loud room, which is one of the reasons there isn't a recorded version of it. Yes. Um, There is a recording, but it would be really difficult to make out the people who were sitting next to the microphones because all of the, the rooms, the sort of different salon rooms around me convention were roofless. Um, And since it's a big, uh, event hall, there was a tremendous amount of echo and bleed through coming from the other events, which is a shame because we had um, a couple of really fun conversations. Yes, we had a we had a conversation that somehow mixed the future of sex and the future of tattoos in one conversation. Yep. So we had Brian Nicole, Brian Nicole, Brian Nicole, who's CEO of Future of Sex, uh, and yes. a great. Um, uh, speaker and uh, entrepreneur in the field of intimate technology. Uh, and Carson Bruns, who's a technologist and artist from University of Colorado Boulder. Um, in that conversation, yep, so we talked about everything from social signaling and the use of kind of rewritable, reconfigurable tattoos to um, keeping your own interesting uh partner in a small kind of jar projection hologram thing by the door. Uh, they were Yeah, no, we talked yeah, we talked about uh, about sort of how AI and sex would merge together in in specific ways, but not necessarily the ways that you might think. Right. Uh so we had that conversation, uh which again is sadly lost to the ages, but uh, also Ari Popper who's uh CEO of Sci Futures Mm-hmm. Joined us as well. Um, you know Ari going back a ways. Um, oh yeah, we've met Ari. Uh, has great conversations with him, and uh, just saw him again in Los Angeles la- uh, two weeks ago. That's um, true. So Ari was there talking about science fiction prototyping, which you can speak to probably more directly than I can. Well, I, I gave a keynote um, on it and some other things at Me Convention, and science fiction prototyping, for those who don't know, is sort of a thought exercise for developing future scenarios or products within those scenarios or customer personas within those scenarios using sort of the, the tools and techniques of science fiction and, and of sort of narrative prose writing in general. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm trying to remember what our kind of general conclusion was, other than it's becoming more popular, more more organizations are beginning to kind of see the value of using these types of narratives uh, for as, as a means of bringing people into um, different futures, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes exotic, sometimes alien, sometimes quite mundane. Um, but uh, kind of it can be an, a, a useful tool that doesn't involve the development of a physical artifact, but more of a kind of textual narrative artifact. Yeah. I think what science fiction prototyping can be really good for and what narrative is, is good for in general. And I think we talked about this was that, um, you know, does design prototyping can be really good for showing you um, sort of an object or a place or a thing. And what, what narrative prototyping does is tell you more about the people who use that thing or the people who inhabit that space and why they're there. 
and and how they use it and the sort of more human side of what is being designed. Right. And some of the work we've actually just completed that, again, probably won't be public for another month or two, uh, wraps all of that together. Uh, it brings together a, a, a combination of physical artifacts, written text, um, uh, media, other forms to to kind of paint a picture of a broader landscape that can be a little bit more immersive, but also allow people to find different touch points. Some people like to, you know, approach and, and, and kind of interrogate an object. Some people would prefer to consume media. Some people, you know, want to sort of see visuals, et cetera. So interesting kind of being able to experiment and try mixtures of different approaches to, to communicate pieces of the same broader world or same kind of broader situation or scenario. Um, well, so, yeah, I think, go yeah, ahead. I think that that mode kind of, it, the other nice thing about it is that it allows you to sort of cater to different learning styles mm -hmm. almost and, and to sort of meet people where they live. Right. Yeah. There's been some, some writing recently by, I think it was policy lab in the UK that's talking about the, you know, kind of explicitly talking about auditory learners, kinesthetic learners, you know, visual mm. learners, et cetera, and how, you know, you, you've you know, finding a balanced way to to uh, investigate a future by presenting different facets of it to people that you know, makes it more accessible. Um, so we talked to Ari, uh, Brioni and Carson. That was a great conversation, lasted an hour, super warm space that we were in. Um, I think we probably all lost a bit of weight uh, during the conversation. <laughs> um, but um, great crowd. Um, a lot of people stuck it out to the end and leaned forward and listened. Um, and then miraculously we rehydrated and did it all over again on day two with, yep. again, an interesting mixture of people. The first conversation was with, you mentioned teenagers earlier with Hannah Lay, who was a young geneticist in Toronto, who was there with a group of, um, kind of young, although she's, I think she's technically not a teenager anymore. Uh, she said she was what, 19, I think. 20? It's got um, teen on yeah, the end of it. It does. But uh, uh, working with the University of Toronto uh, in the medical school there, I think, uh, on CRISPR and other sort of genetic technologies. So um, Hannah talked to us both about the, the, the research work that she's doing, but also kind of a generational perspective uh, mm. on, on the future, which was kind of interesting. Um, and then we were able to bring together two really great writers, uh, Sheree Renee Thomas who is a writer, sci-fi poet from Memphis, um, who was there uh, doing some work with uh, Mercedes that I think is a project that Cory Doctor was also involved in as well, uh, your friend Corey. And, yes. um, and then we also were able to get Ian McDonald uh, up on stage with us. Um, and if you vaguely know that name or know it really well, he's, I guess, recently authored the Luna Trilogy. Uh, that's true. Yeah, that, that's the, the most recent. Yeah, Everness trilogy before that, um, but really kind of broke ground uh, in writing Dervish House, River of Gods, Brazil. So one of the one of the first kind of mainstream moves into writing about futures of the global South and other cultures um, in a in a kind of mass market accessible way. And then Sri Renee was talking about Afrofuturism and basically futures that involve the kind of people she sees on the street around her in the town that she lives. Um, and that was also a great conversation looking at kind of new and emerging voices uh, as well as some of the older voices and the role that they play now and the role they may play in the future um, in the kind of broader science fiction and futures discussion. 
anything that jumped out at you in that conversation that uh, was notable? It was all notable, but um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, they were both really, really wonderful conversations. I think like what was interesting, what's what's interesting about both of those is that, you know, whether that is that they ended up being kind of in their own way, sort of stories about hyper-local futures. Mm -hmm. They are about the people that you see every day, but they're also informed, you know, even the, the more sort of far flung global futures stuff like river of gods was, was Ian, Ian explained that he was, he, he, he wrote those, he was inspired uh, to do those because he hadn't seen it before. And because he, he was so, locked in his own community uh as it was right and right. and that he wanted to sort of he he wanted the story to take him somewhere and he wanted to take other people with him yeah and i think his his comment was generally that you know having grown up in northern ireland uh during the troubles that you know there were only really two two things you could do <laughs> um, yeah. neither of those seemed to be attractive to him um but he also wanted to explore somewhere else, something that wasn't the the kind of events unfolding around him at the time. Um, but interestingly, you know, in context, that was probably, you know, 20 years ago that he wrote those books or 15 years ago. He'll kill me if I get it wrong. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but also, you know, made the point that if he was doing that today, he probably might not do that today because there are there are other people, um, you know, in the in the kind of public view who can or who aren't in the public view who can better bring some of those stories and experiences and potential futures um, to, you know, a readership. Uh, so he, you know, he. Well, yeah, I mean, I think he 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 and others sort of, I think, like opened a door uh-huh. and sort of proved the profitability and the and the and the the interest. Right. And then once you've opened that door, one of the things that one of the topics of conversation in the genre community in general and in publishing at large is once you've opened that door, what is your responsibility to hold it open mm-hmm. for other mm-hmm. people to go through? And, and I think that's sort of what he was saying is that it's now right. someone else's turn. Right. And so there's a lot, you know, I, I happened to think about this conversation yesterday when um, our, our buddy Warren Ellis, um, the writer and Castlevania producer now and, and all around, um, Eminence uh, announced that his new series <laughs> being picked up by Netflix is uh, called Heaven's Forest, but it's basically a Ramayana, Ramayana-inspired epic, as he describes it. So basically, mm-hmm. uh, you know, comes out of the sort of Indo, uh, Indic culture uh, and describes the sort of future world that you know that, that brings in elements of the Ramayana. And, you know, there'll be tremendous excitement around that. I'm looking forward to seeing it. But, you know, so much new investment in different people, different voices, exploring, um, you know, various and different cultures. Um, but uh, that was that was a great conversation. Um, and we uh, also had some really fun side conversations with people making amazing, um, I don't know how you would describe them, kind of... Uh, embodied um prosthetic strange outer shells <laughs> um that uh yes well art. well art i think we we would we would safely call it yes. art that they were making yes pa- sorry pardon the scooter who just that just and... pulled up outside um uh but both those were also kind of exploring different futures of beauty uh and cosmetics and kind of yeah. How we represent ourselves. So there's a lot of really cool stuff going on there. Um, a copious amount of free gin. So thanks for that. 
Um, and yeah. uh, then I was at Next 19 the next week um, back in Germany in Hamburg um, on stage with Sophie Howe, who was the um, only commissioner of future generations uh, in the world right now. So she represents the um, she represents Wales um, and is in uh, the government there essentially charged with being a kind of proxy voice for people who haven't been born yet uh, when you're thinking about laws that will affect multiple generations. Um, so she we had a great sort of shared stage and then also a further conversation that lasted about an hour with Monique van Dusseldorp there at uh, Next 19. So that was that was kind of a cool conversation as well. There was also some great panels on future of China, um, you know, generational uh, differences in, in technology usage, a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, and thank you also to Next for inviting me to talk at Next Minds, which was a kind of separate pre-event salon as well, um, where I, if I recall correctly, I talked about um, the future being always in prototype. So I will I will not describe that talk mm. any further. Um, and what <laughs> okay. else have you been up to in the meantime? Uh, well, um, a project that I've spent actually over a year now uh, working on um, came out recently on the Serial Box platform, which is a sort of streaming uh, podcasting platform for fiction where you can sort of listen to fiction hmm. and read it at the same time or one right. or both or, or neither. Um, and uh, I've been working on the canonical extension of wow. the Orphan Black franchise. And I wrote uh, the first chapter of the series that I wrote. Uh, it's called Orphan Black, the next chapter. And I wrote chapter five of it. And uh, I got to, I got to hey. carry the cliffhanger before the hiatus. And that was an awesome and intimidating responsibility. And now it's out. Uh, so if you would like to listen to Tatiana Maslany reprise her Emmy-winning role, but this time reading my words, uh, how's you can, that for power? You can find that at Serial Box. It, it feels it's very intimidating, honestly, but but also clarified a lot creatively once I knew that she would be reading my words. One, that's really intimidating, but on the other hand, I could hear the characters a lot more clearly in my head as I was writing them because I could refer back to her performances. And I actually went back as far to, sort. I read interviews with her makeup artist and her costume uh, designer to sort of feel my way into each of the, the different characters, that is which was fun. See, this job is, is it can be interesting. <laughs> Contrary to everybody thinks like the future isn't a drag, but uh, you know, it can actually be interesting. If only for the presence of an interdimensional cat that's on neither side of this call. If, if <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. He is he is both inside the you, call if and if you have the seen call. the classic at, version of the original of the fly, you'll know that yeah having yes. a, a a cat's molecules trapped between two two podcast microphones is is uh yeah it's par for the course in this this program um so anything else that we can uh that we can discuss before we uh we flip over to to hear from anthony anywhere you're going soon hmm Oh yeah, no, I I will be in Stockholm for North by actually uh, at the around the nineteenth of November. Uh, if anybody is sort of listening around then, I'm going to be leading a couple of different 
keynotes and workshops and um, also about design fiction and, and sort of the things we do and um, talking about that. So I will be in Sweden, which is, I'm excited about that. And what else? Oh, I have an interview with Charlie Jane Anders. Uh, we talk about um, our respective stories in the Future Tense Fiction anthology. And that interview Super. is up now on Slate. Oh, yeah. That reminds me entirely mentioning design fiction um, that we were just, uh, Susan and I were just out in L.A. Um, big repeated thank you to folks that we that we spent some time with out there. Um, Julian Bleeker from Near Future Laboratory. Um, uh, one of the, one of the progenitors of, of, uh, design fiction, um, great conversation with Julian, um, an opportunity to drop in again with our friends at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, um, within their sort of really interesting visual strategy and, and, uh, kind of nascent futures team that also puts out the fantastic posters that some of you have seen of, uh, kind of travel to different planets, uh, but they're. In which exactly. you would have there seen was, more there was of a new, Halloween. A new batch released at Halloween. Um, got a got a look in at the Mars 2020 lander um, and sharing the observation platform with the sound designer from Call of Duty. Uh, so one of those average Fridays. Um, also a, a check in <laughs> with with uh, who I mentioned yes. already, Ari Popper out in LA, and uh, and where else? And we actually managed to sneak inside another live recorded podcast. Uh, Chris Hayes from MSNBC. That's that does, true. Uh, what is the uh, why? Why is this happening? Not what is this thing? Why is this happening? Or with um, we got to sit in on a live conversation with um, that Chris had with um, uh, Omar Alakad from uh, the author of American War uh, and Adam McKay, mm -hmm. which you know was a great a great deep conversation over the course of an hour and in, uh, in front of a live audience there in the, in the ACE theater in LA about um, coping with climate change uh, and the, you know, what sort of future prospects that brings. So um, um, not in the habit of, of promoting other people's stuff, but Hey, um, go find that episode because somewhere in the back <laughs> of that episode, we were sneak recording another live podcast inside a live podcast. So beware out there. So if we listen to that original you can podcast, hear a tiny I'll podcast inside the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that's, that's a totally different podcast. Of the, of the podcast. Um, but yeah. uh, um, great day spent out there and also getting some actual work done uh, on projects yet to be realized, but uh, all good stuff. So thanks to everybody who hosted, spent time with us had fun conversations with us, ate tacos with us. Um, uh, we appreciate that. And we'll be back in LA soon. And it's entirely likely I'll be back in Dubai. And also um, maybe by the time this is out, Singapore. Um, so uh, more to say on those later. But um, that's, yeah, that's kind of a 25-minute recap of our busy summer and fall. Yeah, that was what we did on exactly. our summer. So um, we kind of keep up our reputation as the hardest working weirdos in the futures business. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. there will be more episodes coming up soon. We're back in the swing of things. The microphone is out. The boom is purchased. Um, there's more gear here. So um, in the meantime, I'm going to wrap up this segment. And coming up next is a conversation uh, that I had recently with Anthony Townsend. Uh, who is a brilliant urbanist, futurist, researcher, writer, thinker on 
the future of smart cities. He had a book out a few years ago on that. And now he is working on one that is really, really intriguing uh, called Ghost Road. That's about um, the interesting and complex futures of mobility. Uh, so in the next segment, you'll hear me talking to Anthony in a fairly wind-whipped day here in Amsterdam. Um, but stay tuned for that. And um, do uh, come back to us. Tell friends that we're back alive and in action. And communicate to us at, um, at underfutures on Twitter with an S. And let us know what you want to hear about, who you'd like to hear from. Uh, and we'll keep the, uh, keep the crank turning. But good to talk to you, Madeline. Take care. Good to talk to you. Bye. Bye-bye. And we're back. Um, as we do from time to time on Under Futures, we, we kidnap important people who managed to come through uh, Amsterdam, The Hague, Toronto, or wherever we are at the time. And uh, this week, we're actually lucky enough to have uh, an old friend and uh, great thinker, Anthony Townsend, here in Amsterdam. Um, Anthony is the, I guess, managing partner of Bits and Atoms. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, you can probably give a better introduction of yourself than I can. But um, thanks for taking a few minutes with us, because I really want to find out about um, a new book that you have coming out. You wrote a book on smart cities about, what, six years ago now? Yeah, 2013. Um, that uh, was way ahead of its time in terms of a, kind of putting a critical lens on uh, the smartification of urban environments and kind of foreshadowed a number of the issues that we're now looking straight at today with things like Google Sidewalk. Um, but you were writing a new book called Ghost Roads. Ghost Roads or Road? road? One Road. Ghost Road, One Road. Um, so uh, give us a little bit of background on who you are, what brought you to the book, and what's the, the big idea behind the book? Yeah, um, so I mean, I, I guess the best way to describe me is I'm somebody who loves cities and I love computers, and that's really been um, the two things that have fascinated me my whole life. And um, you know, I've tried to, to understand how they're coming together. Uh, I really think that urbanization and spread of, spread of ubiquitous computing, those are you know, the two mega trends, at least technologically speaking, of the 21st century um, that are gonna shape everybody's lives. Um, regardless of whether they live in a rich country or a poor country. Um, and uh, so that's really what Smart Cities was about, the, the first book. Um, this book is uh, really trying to, I think, break through a lot of the myths that we've been told about automated vehicles, mm-hmm. um, whether it's by investors or engineers or um, you know, people that are trying to um, make us afraid of, of what's coming, um, you know, from the auto industry. Right. And, um, you know, the ghost road, I really struggled. Um, this was like an image that popped into my head very early on in writing the book, and I struggled to sort of express what it means. Uh, I think it's, it's trying to evoke uh, landscapes that are dominated by machines mm-hmm. uh, in the same sense that, you know, introducing the automobile in the 20th century really changed communities. Right. Um, by forcing us to design around the, the physical constraints of that. But it's also trying to evoke the role of software um, in the cloud. Right. That's going to be monitoring and managing the movement of people and goods in, in ways that, you know, we never imagined before. So, you know, the real story of the age of automation isn't just about intelligence doing the driving, it's about 
um, machine intelligence you know, telling us where we're going to go in the first place. Right. And so you've, you, as I understand it from listening to previous interviews, you've got kind of um, you know, three big themes through there, right? This sort of specialization, materialization, and financialization. Right. Um, tell me about those, because those are, those are three very loaded, intriguing words. Yeah, so um, again, getting back to this idea of like breaking through the myths, I think the, the prevailing vision of what the world is going to be like after we you know, wholeheartedly switch over to automated vehicles, computer-driven vehicles, not human-driven ones, is a world of you know, no traffic, uh, no accidents um, or crashes, as right. you know, they're really called. Um, and universal mobility. Right. And it's, it's this sort of like Jetson's vision of, of pod cars moving in perfect synchronization. Right, sort of packetization, basically. basically. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and the more I thought about it, um, the more I realized that almost nothing about that is <laughs> like that's a future that was never true and never will be true. You surprised me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the first piece, specialization, is, is looking at uh, vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, services and, and driving itself and essentially taking taking the assumption that none of those things are going to be like a binary switch so um, you know we're not going to go from uh, human driven automobiles to pod cars um, we're going to see an explosion of specialized vehicle types um, some of which have people in them some of which don't um, which are computer controlled in all different sorts of ways right um, the uh, so that's that's vehicles services. I think we're already in the midst of just an explosion of services, uh, mobility services that are enabled uh, by various kinds of automation, and that will continue. And then driving itself isn't something that's going to um, just switch from fully human driven to fully computer driven, um, and that becomes most clear when you look at commercial vehicles. Yeah, um, which again is getting outside. The, the prevailing narrative, which is mostly focused on consumers and, and passenger vehicles. Um, you know, a, a 20-ton tractor-trailer barreling down the highway, uh, it's going to be very difficult to put that vehicle on the road with no driver. Uh, or no, sorry, no crew member. Right. And that crew member may be, you know, doing something different in the future um, if they're not driving, but they're certainly going to be there. And everyone you talk to in the industry says that. So the idea that the, that the driving function changes in many ways the way flying an aircraft has changed uh, with the, the uh, introduction of extensive automation, I think is, um, and you know, the, the, the narrative that like, this is gonna de-skill jobs, I think is, is also something that should be brought into question. You know, the, the, the manuals for flying airplanes now that they're heavily automated are much bigger than they were yeah. um, beforehand. But then you also have 737 MAX yes. type scenarios. But it, it strikes me, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about like, you know, DHL drivers, um, you know, your Uber Eats rider, your Lyft driver are basically kind of Centaur light models now, right? Mm-hmm. They're effectively piloting the car, but they've got, you know, the guy who drove my rideshare this morning had an earpiece in, you know, taking navigation direction, and he's, you know, twitching to the next fare. Um, so he's, yes, operating independently and kind of human controlled, but he's still, he's still somewhat taking, you know, direction uh, from a, an intelligent system of some kind. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think for, 
one that's probably like an interstitial state right. um, where, you know, I think what we're discovering is that those companies, this first generation of companies, aren't all that creative about how they're putting this technology to use and they haven't even figured out how to make money. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that's sort of the end state or, you know, like that's the, that's the best innovation we're going to get at bringing these, these human, you know, human and, and machine capabilities together. Um, again, I think bigger, um, this is part of the story that like, as we push the envelope of what's possible, things, vehicles that are bigger, much smaller, much faster, much slower, um, that will then look back to the human factor and say, all right, well, how can, how can we use these people more effectively? So teleoperation right. is one area that um, there's an awful lot of interesting things going on in. Um, you know, if you can, uh, you know, have remote operation um, of certain functions, like detour, don't detour, right. cross the yellow line into oncoming traffic to get around the obstacle, don't do it. Um, that allows you to, uh, you know, combine those two things in, in ways that are, are more valuable than either of them apart. So it's kind of like a live capture. You know, you yeah. have to pop yeah. in for a second and tell the car whether to hit that thing or not. Yeah. Um, so just to get back to the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the question before about the, the three big stories. So specialization is one, and it's right. really across the transport landscape. Um, the materialization story is that I think we're paying uh, much more attention to how we will travel in this future than how our stuff will travel. And there's a pretty good case to be made that automation of goods movement is going to happen a lot faster. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually a compelling business case for it because of what's going on in e-commerce. Right. And the um, kind of uncontrollable costs of shipping and particularly returns. Right. Um, and something like 50% of apparel bought online gets returned at some yeah. point. Yeah. Well, it's, it's cheap enough here now that it's, it's just showrooming. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a problem that has to get solved, and this technology is going to be a big part of solving it. And if you look historically, um, it's, in cities, it's changes in, in freight transportation that tend to lead the big kind of structural changes right. that happen, whether it's um, you know, railroads or trucking um, or, or uh, you know, other kinds of, of goods, uh, air freight. Right. Um, and then the last big story is about what I'm calling the financialization of mobility. And this is, this is really the cloud story. Yeah. Um, you know, what happens when everything that moves is trackable and, and controllable? Um, and uh, all of the associated revenue streams uh, uh, with those, those movements, whether it's um, you know, taxi meters or, or shipping charges, or in the case of the public side, you know, usage fees right. for pieces of, of a road or a curb, um, you know, and that can be dealt with uh, in mass. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, you start to, to very quickly go to some kind of crazy scenarios, um, you know, where you can, you can bundle those revenue streams from, say, you know, a, a fleet, a citywide fleet of autonomous taxis, and, and that becomes a tradable financial instrument. Yeah. Um, in the same way that, that mortgage-backed securities and the revenue streams from subprime mortgages were um, tradable securities. So you've heard it here. You've invented motion-backed securities. <laughs> exactly. We, we got that on record, time-stamped now. No, but the, I mean, the truth <laughs> is, like, there, there in the last 20 years has been 
any number of cash flows yeah. that have been um, turned into. I, I have all kinds of crazy examples in the book, but um, I think it's almost inevitable. Um, so that's one side of it. The, the other side um, is governments seeing this as essentially, seeing their roads and their curbs and, and all of the um, public realm as a giant ATM machine yeah. that they can now cash in on. And while I support um, the impetus behind and the goals of congestion pricing, um, I don't think I'm going to make a lot of friends in the urban planning world with, with my take on it in this book, that I see congestion pricing really as a gateway drug yeah. to, well. um, to, to this <laughs> kind of precision tolling of, of mobility um, that cities will use not just to finance transit, uh, which is how they want to use the stuff now, essentially tax cars to fund right, transit, right, 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 um, and achieve your sustainability and your equity goals. It's going to be used well. For it's a carbon lever, right? You, know, you can you can cities think right now that they can kind of push that, use that lever to reduce carbon output in the city, and also get some kind of commensurate tax return. You know that it's carbon pricing directly, but it's it has. You're right. It opens the door to a lot of other kinds of models once there's a new no, no one ever got rid of, a, of an incoming cash flow for a municipality yeah and, and in New York City which is you know the fourth world city to, to take congestion pricing on the debate uh, has moved stunningly quickly from the mobility goals right. to the revenue creation opportunities and how that revenue is going to be divided up and to me, that's just a that sign that that slippage is going to be very fast. I, I sort of tried to take like the devil's advocate view of, of where this is heading. And, you know, yes, under, in a best case scenario on paper, congestion pricing will disincentivize private automobile use and incentivize transit and, and other greener alternatives. But in the real world, um, it's going to create a situation where, um, you know, cities will probably want to encourage a monopolist um, for, for surface transportation. Right. They will want to set up a uh, taxing structure um, that that monopolist can pass through to passengers. Yeah. Um, part of the excitement I think about all these fees now is that people think that, that the venture capitalists are going to pay, that it's going to <laughs> get subsidized as part of the price war um, by the, the ride hail companies. And in fact, they're going to, as quickly as possible, find a way to offload it onto us. Well, because they can't go on forever, right? It's, yeah. not, it's not a bottomless pit of subsidization. Yeah. And then the crazy thing is that uh, this is exactly how this played out about 100 years ago, when, uh, or 120 years ago, when electric streetcars replaced horse-drawn streetcars right. in, in most Western cities. Um, you know, you had a, all of a sudden the independent operators, who used to, all you had to do was buy a horse and a cart, and you're in business. Um, now you had to build tracks and you had to build uh, power networks um, and what happened in, in most cities is that the the, um, the traction company, the, the streetcar company, ended up becoming the biggest customer of the electric power utility. Right. They, in many cities, ended up merging to become a single light power and traction network provider. So basically like modernity. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and they ended up in very corrupt relationships with City Hall um, and you know, essentially guaranteeing a revenue stream for, for the city government in return for the license to operate a monopoly. So we end up with, it's time for some traffic in Fort Lee. It's, exactly. It, 
What does that look like in this well, city? What you end up with is, you know, you end up with cities like Philadelphia where they never really built a full modern subway yeah. network because the streetcar uh, monopoly was so deeply entrenched um, and, and effectively blocked this new disruptive technology, which did... Um, did kind of challenge challenge that regime in other cities. So, what's the taxi medallion of the of the, this future world? Like, what what does that metaphor translate to? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that's that's an open question. Um, how do you create artificial scarcity, and is that the way that um, you know cities are going to try to structure these markets to to make them more competitive? What a lot of cities are doing is um, mobility as a service, so mm-hmm. trying to orchestrate. Um, not just the rules of the marketplace for people to buy and sell rides of yeah. all kinds digitally, um, but uh, trying to actually be the infrastructure. Um, you know, Helsinki has had an experiment running for a couple of years, which is a very limited uptake. Berlin just launched uh, Jelby, which mm-hmm. is um, the transit authority's um, much larger, much more ambitious, much more heavily promoted. Uh, mass alternative, and I now, you know, hear transit people all over the world talking about. It's just in Mississippi, I'm working on a project, and the Coast Transit Authority in Gulfport, Mississippi, is talking about mobility as a service. So, a lot of cities are seeing this as as a way for them to essentially, you know, be the app store for whatever mobility service comes along, whether it's automated or or, or not. Is that? Is that necessary, or is it is it a just a, a the kind of next fixation that allows them to wave a wand of modernity on places that need upgrades of some kind? I think they want to try to city governments want to be in a position, you know, similar to Apple or Facebook or Google, where, where they you know control the key pieces of the digital um, infrastructure. Um, whether it's identity or transaction clearing or um, data exchange mm-hmm. uh, you know, requirements. Right. Um, and, you know, they're, they're very afraid that um, it will become more of uh, a walled garden type of uh, marketplace. Um, and that's, that's very much what is happening in North America right now. We have Lyft and Uber essentially within their own, you know, uh, app and, and network, trying to create these multimodal... Yeah, um, sort of the platformization of everything. Yeah. So, you know, you can go into Uber and you can book a journey and pay for it, um, and plan, plan it, book it, and pay for it. That crosses, you know, bike share, uh, ride hail, and maybe public transit. Right. Um, but it's only their partners that are going to be offered. So, Whereas in Berlin, yeah, yeah. you might get competing offers from three different bike share companies. So I'm curious about your, you know, you're kind of drawing that distinction between kind of North American approaches, which has so much to do with like municipal politics and history. And, you know, here we are, we're sitting in the middle of Amsterdam, literally like near Central Station. We have everything outside from a 17th century, you know, galleon, a big sort of three-masted ship all the way through. We just walked past uh, a kind of fat-nosed cargo bike, you know, e-bike that probably had refrigeration in the front and, you know, a built-in network node of some description. So we've got, like, the total gamut here. Um, 
in terms of like rideshare, something like NS, so the, the National Rail Service can provide you, you know, b- bikes at the termination points. They now extend into taxis, green wheels, rideshare. So you've got a kind of National Rail Service providing at least a, a version or a flavor of that platform. How do you see the differences between kind of how, let's say, European cities to generalize and North American cities are sort of approaching the problem? I think European cities are just much further ahead in uh, trying to um, offer all the options under their umbrella. And um, it's because they have the resources and I think the understanding of of where the market's headed. Um, And I think they have a better set of tools to kind of like push people into those choices, whether it's fuel taxes, mm-hmm. higher fuel taxes, making, making it less convenient to, to ride, um, you know, take your own, your own car, or just um, you know, the built environment, um, making it more convenient to, to hop on a bike or hop on a train. Right. It's, the, the, I guess another piece of that that I'm interested in is, you know, you talk about like specialization. Um, you know, what I've just pointed to is kind of like vehicle zoology. You know, if you walk around Amsterdam, you see like this boom of vehicle morphology, mm-hmm. you know, going every possible direction. Everything from, you know, hoverboards to pelotons of cargo trucks. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you, you talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but I'm, I'm interested in sort of what you think. Are there going to be kind of winning forms or platforms? Is North America positioned as well as other parts of the world to take advantage of those? Well, so, I mean, I think vehicle specialization is, is the most relatable way to think about what's going on. Um, You know, I think about, I think thinking of like an explosion of species is certainly a good metaphor. Um, But when it really starts to get interesting is when you you look at like how um, driving itself can can speciate. Um, So like, uh, you know, like Japanese drag racers, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they may try to automate like every piece of the driving function except for the throttle. Right. Right. And I, I think understanding like how, um, what a large bundle of behaviors and, and desires and um, kinds of experiences that people have when they're operating a vehicle um, is, is one way of understanding like how to unpack it. And, you know, whether it's, coming at it from like a recreational point of view or a commercial point of view. Like right. where does, where does the, the vehicle operator add the most value? Um, you know, in a, in a long haul trucking situation in the future, it's probably gonna be uh, monitoring the cargo and making sure that it's cooled to the right temperature, that it's not aging too quickly, that it's secure, uh, that it's gonna arrive at the market, you know, at the right price, right? As yeah. uh, you know, and in the right location. Beat the tariff. <laughs> yeah, um, and so <laughs> once you start to move into that view of what's going on, it's the vehicles. I think actually become less interesting. Like that's just um, the, the platform. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's you just assume that they're going to change constantly, um, and and uh, you know that that becomes the norm. It's yeah. I'm like suddenly thinking of you know a snowpiercer scenario on a, on a uh, you know perimeter highway. Somebody just 
just to keep driving until the tariff drops or until the pricing is right, and then you can then you can drop it in. Well, this so this is this is where I think the the financialization piece comes in and, and creates some really crazy possibilities. So, um, you know, what if uh, a robust futures market in in automated taxi rides develops? Right. Um, will people start to speculate against that in really damaging ways in the, in the way that say you know Enron was trading against California. Right. Um, it all and, comes and, back and to Fort Lee. Ended up in, in rolling blackouts. Right. Um, right. Because they can get an edge on the trade. Um, those are very very real possibilities, and when you have all those pieces of that system coupled together, it's essentially software talking to software on high speed networks. Um, yeah, I think you can see essentially flash crash, flash crash type behavior start to propagate into the world of, of infrastructure, and I think it's it's urban transportation that's going to happen first because right. of all of the like smart city sectors, right. housing, transport, energy, it's the one that has moved the fastest. And here, we're, and right now, where people are you know having a fit about PG and E shutting down part of the grid in California, that's a really simple. I mean, it's a massive issue, yeah. but it's a it's a simple kind of precursor to other things. I mean, that was a, a human being made that decision. Well, an insurance with, an with, insurer made that yeah, decision. An right, actuary, right, an actuary right. made the decision. I mean, but there was some warning. You yes. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and there's some transparency to it as sure. well. None of those things will will happen um, when, say, you know, a, a, a retailer of the future decides to roll, you know, a thousand. Um, cargo drones into your neighborhood and, and essentially like dump you know a bunch of product on the market and knock you know everyone on your high street out of business before they move on to the next town so mobility spam but moved into cargo spam yeah fantastic so we're back to the crabject again yes this is, just takes us back like eight years <laughs> Um, uh, I know I have to let you go because you've got a you've got a event to be at in just a few minutes um, when can people expect to see the book and what can they do between now and then to stay engaged with this topic with you? So uh, Ghost Road will be out in June of 2020, published by Norton. Um, I have a website up, uh, ghostroadbook.com, where you can sign up to get notified when it's available for ordering. Fantastic. It sounds like it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I'm, I'm super excited. I'm just sitting. We're just sitting here in the in the in the lobby, the basement of a building in Amsterdam, talking about it, <laughs> and I'm excited. Um, well, thanks for spending the time. Thank you. And uh, we'll check back in with you when the book comes out to see how it's going. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks. This has been an episode of Underfutures. Follow us on underfutures.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.